Well, good afternoon, church. It's my joy to be here with you, to share the Word of God with you, and as well as participate in the communion table. I hope you're as excited as I am. I'd like to take you today to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And as you're making your way there, as you understand the title of our sermon today is Exalting in God, you understand also that we only have God to exalt in. Scripture calls us to exalt in God. But the question that I may ask you today is, what makes something worthy and right for you to boast in? We live in a society today where boasting and bragging is pretty much a part of normal life. People use even words like, or phrases like bragging rights. It's a new term or new phrase where people try to justify their boasting and bragging when they do something really, really good. And they say, it is worth and right for me to boast about it without being penalized for that. The Bible is also not silent about boasting. It speaks much about it. One term, and as you open to Romans chapter 5, and if you look at verse 11, where we read, And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. This term, exalt, that's what it means. It means to boast. The definition includes, you can name it as boasting or glorying or taking pride in something or someone. But it implies several things. The first thing, obviously, it is valuing something above others. It is seeing something that brings you satisfaction and joy. But it is also something that is considered reliable and trustworthy. And in Scripture, this is the common definition that is used. It is when we boast in something, we consider that trustworthy, reliable, and it gives us absolute confidence in that object or that person. If I may remind you of an event that took place near almost a year ago in Florida, there was a construction of a large pedestrian bridge. The bridge was supposed to connect the campus in Florida, university campus, and the community right next to it. And you know, you may have heard that the bridge while it's being constructed, it collapsed right on top of a busy highway killing at least six people. Let me just read you a short excerpt from an article that was written next day. As the 950-ton concrete bridge section was swung into place over a highway last weekend, Florida International University, FIU officials were beaming with pride. The pedestrian bridge on the edge of the Miami area campus was a signature achievement of the school's Accelerated Bridge Construction University Transportation Center, a research group set up by, with federal funding a few years ago to show how spans could be built faster and cheaper in the United States. FIU is about building bridges and student safety. This project accomplishes our mission beautifully FIU president boasted that day. 
We are filled with pride and satisfaction at seeing this engineering feat come to life and connect our campus to the surrounding community. Five days later, the bridge collapsed onto the busy six-lane highway, crushing cars and killing at least six people in a tragedy now under federal investigation. This is one of the examples where people have put their trust and confidence either in a method of building, in this case, a bridge. And they said, this is the best thing we can provide. We love it. We trust it. We enjoy it. We exult in it. They take pride, and this method failed. I'll show you a couple more examples in Scripture where Bible forbids wrong boasting. For example, in Jeremiah 9, 23, we read this. The Lord said, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. Why? Because these things pertain to us, and these things are not reliable. We cannot claim anything ours to be worthy of boasting. But he says, but let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. If we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and Paul makes a huge point. And he just refutes the notion that anyone can boast in their human wisdom. No one can boast in their social status. If you'd like, you can go there with me. Chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, verse 26. It's a little bit lengthy passage, so I'll have you open there. 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, for consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. As we move closer to Romans, and as you understand the concept and the context of Romans, we understand in chapter 1, This term of chapter 2 and chapter 3, this term of exaltation or boasting, it becomes especially, particularly important for the question of salvation. We can boast about many things, and if those things belong to us, we cannot. But especially in regards to salvation, because God has made it especially unique for that purpose, that we cannot boast in anything that we do. Chapter 1 Paul explains the condition of man. It is fallen, it is depraved, it is corrupted. 
There are always people who try to reach God and achieve their own righteousness with their own terms, and they are failing over and over. In chapter 2 and chapter 3, Paul takes extra effort to disprove any right of boasting. That right would be exercised in the Jewish heritage. That right would oftentimes be exercised by bodily circumcision. Hey, listen, I'm circumcised. I must be saved. I must be acceptable to God. Paul just disproves that. Having received the law, people would say, listen, we have received the law. Therefore, we are saved. And he says, no. If you receive the law, that means you assume that you can keep the law. And no one can keep the law because we all have failed. Ultimately, you cannot boast in anything that is your own, human, natural, No position, no ability, no circumstances, no social status give you a reason to boast in, especially with respect to salvation. One is called only to boast in God and his works. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another. As we move forward in chapter 4, Paul concludes that since righteousness, which is what is truly needed to be saved, can only be obtained by grace through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. There's absolutely no reason to boast. Every human attempt to obtain that righteousness is guaranteed to fail. There's nothing that humans can rely on in and of themselves. There's nothing that they can produce to be worthy, reliable, that would produce confidence and exaltation. It is all in the Lord. So we come now to chapter 5, and I'd like us to read chapter 5. In chapter 5, now Paul, after proving his case, that we come by grace through faith in Christ, now he shows us the benefits that we have and the benefits that we can exalt in. Read with me chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt, that is boast, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, 
through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So you can see the word term exalt is repeated once in chapter in verse 2. You can see the first benefit that Paul names, which is the hope of the glory of God. He says, we failed. We failed. Jan was speaking about this last time, that we were created in the image of God in order to share the glory of God, in order to bring him glory through our ruling, through our establishing the kingdom of God on earth, by our behavior, by exalting him, and we failed miserably. We failed, we fell short of the glory of God. And here, Paul says, we have hope. You are now being transformed from glory to glory. But the ultimate glory will come in the future. And that ultimate glory will, be, you, each and every one of you will receive. So that is one reason for exaltation. Second reason, he could look, take a look at with me at Verse 3, and not only this, but we also exalt in tribulation. Tribulation is the second benefit that we can exalt in. Literally can be translated as pressures. Why? Because tribulations, they produce perseverance. Perseverance produces proven character. Proven character produces hope. It even strengthens our hope further. And after giving, then, a list of benefits that we will be looking at from, verses chap- from verse 6 all the way to 11. Take a look at verse 11. It takes us back to, the qu- to that term again where Paul says, but we also exalt in God. Ultimately, we don't exalt in just the benefits of God, which do point to God, but we exalt in our God because he's the source of every benefit. God is truly worthy of full exaltation. Outside of God and his works, there's nothing in this world within us or outside of us that we can boast about. As we look at our passage, which will be from verse 6 to verse 11, I would like you to see the fact that confidence in the work of Christ on our behalf leads us to boasting or exaltation in God. Confidence in the work of Christ on our behalf leads us to the boasting or exaltation in God. The passage that I'm going to present, verses 6 through 11, we can break down in three points. And the way it's going to work like this, and this is, I think, what exactly what Paul is trying to show. He's going to point us to the event that has taken place in the past, which is Love of God revealed in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Then he's going to jump in the future and he's going to say, we have the promise of salvation, salvation from the wrath of God in the future. And then understanding the benefits that were granted in the past and the promise that was given in the future, he says that we have a guarantee of peace, security, and confidence of salvation in the present. It is a beautiful passage, and I pray that we would be able to see that. If you go with me to verse 6, and Paul says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Paul first begins to explain God's love by, first of all, reminding who we are. The recipients of this love. If you look at it, he uses the word helpless in verse 6. Speaking about weakness, sickness, impotence. We cannot do anything. And if you remember in Romans chapter 3, it says there is none righteous, not even one. There is no, none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become useless. Useless, helpless, weak, sick. That's exactly who we were before at the time when Christ died for the ungodly. You may say, well, I was not present. But humanity, humanity in and of itself was in this state, this condition. Sick, weak, helpless, impotent, useless. Second term he used in verse 6, ungodly. Having no reverence for God. There's none who does good, we read in Chapter 3, there's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. Their poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Ungodly. Ungodly. In verse 8, he calls us sinners. Those who missed the mark that we were meant to do, that we were required to make. We missed the mark. Ultimately, in verse 10, we're called enemies of God. Enemies. We had enmity that appeared in our judgments. It appeared in our satisfactions, in our wills, in our affections, in our practice. Everything was rotten before the Lord has saved us. We were serving a different commander-in-chief, formally walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, who is now working in the sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2.2. Paul explains that love of God, love of God was extreme because it loved the worst. Now, what Paul's next argument is, he tries to compare God's love from something that is lesser to a greater. Look at his argument here. He says, well, perhaps for a good man, someone would dare even to die. What Paul is trying to do, and he's trying to find some good, decent love among the inhabitants of this world. And obviously, it would be among humans because we're made in the image of God. We're able to love, right? And he says, well, perhaps someone would die for someone who is righteous. Someone who is good. I don't know if you've ever considered this. How much love would it take for you to die for someone, first of all? Who would say, well, I would die for my children. I would rather have some kind of a disease than them. I would die for my wife. You know, people said, I would die for my wife. Why don't you just be nice to her today? You don't need to die for her. Right? But, but it's, it's a common grace that oftentimes is revealed even among unbelievers. There are parents who would actually give the last piece of bread during famine to their children in order for them to survive so they could even 
They lay down their lives for them, right? There are people who lay their lives for the sake of others, loved ones, during natural disasters, perhaps. There are many soldiers who lay their lives for their comrades in the name of the nation, in the name of their country, right? These cases are there. They're rare, but they're there. They exist. Now, what we, we don't hear about is someone recognizing a criminal and then accepting the guilt verdict and taking a punishment for this criminal by even giving his life. Not that it's possible, but consider this. If someone would say, well, I want to take this punishment for him because I want to take that guilt upon myself. This scenario would even be harder if this criminal act would be done against you personally. Let me give you this scenario. Imagine that you were involved in a massive car accident where a drunk store robber who just shot and killed a police officer was being chased by the police and he runs the red light and T-bones your car, nearly killing you. And then you spend three months in the ICU almost dying, you survive, your life has changed forever because you have certain disabilities after that. Now, if you, as someone who is made in the image of God, you say, that man needs justice, right? You will stand in court and you will testify, according to scripture, against this man and you would Totally not mind if the person ends up being in jail for a lifetime for the, all the acts that he has committed or even receive capital punishment. Would you ever say that, you know what, I'm going to take this man's guilt. I'm actually going to take the punishment that it takes. Even though I suffered I will take everything upon myself and I will actually live, allow him to live a happy life. Would you ever do that? You see, it's a little bit closer to what God's love was. It still, by the way, falls very short. Why? Well, because you and I are sinners. We deserve to die and take the punishment for our sin. And Jesus Christ was pure and innocent. We read in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin, sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's harder. That means that we would have to be perfectly sinless and accept the sin and guilt and punishment for that person. Another reason why it's not even close, because Jesus took the sin of the world. He didn't pick up two, three sins for, for which he, the person needs to take a punishment. He took unimaginable amount of sin upon himself. He did that out of love. He did that out of love. Another aspect of this love that Paul brings up here is that this Love in which we exalt in, it is a timely love. It is very much easier to forgive and to show grace to someone 
when that person recognizes their guilt, comes to you and say, brother, forgive me. I have wronged you. I have messed up in this. What about showing grace and love and forgiveness and eternal life to someone who still hates your guts? How difficult would that be? And that's exactly what Paul is saying. While we were sinners, while we were ungodly, while we were helpless, that is exactly where we needed that love of God. Christ did not die for us after we reached a certain standard or improved in our behavior or even changed our desire to follow him. No, he died when we needed him the most, when we were turning against him, walking away from him. He died at the point when we were powerlessly, completely unworthy of his love. That is when he died for us. What would happen if he would have waited? Well, we would have never been saved. We would have never been saved. Therefore, we exalt in God because we're confident in his incomparable love. We exalt in God for that. Take a look at verse 9. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. We exalt in God because we have confidence in his promise of salvation from wrath. We have looked in the past at the love that was revealed back then. We are going to look at the promise of the future and we say we exalt in God because he has given us confidence in his promise. We were destined to God's wrath because of our sins. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because to one man sin entered the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For the wages of sin is death. For the wrath of God, we read in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The wrath of God was ready to eat us. Now, dealing with the problem, we cannot just, God could have never just swept the sin under the rug. That's, he cannot. He's a just God. So justice had to be met. The Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Nahum 1.3. God's judgment was inevitable. The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Justice had to be served. For you and me, what did that mean? Jesus had to pay with his own blood. By his blood, we were saved. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you were healed. Justice needed to be served. God, Jesus made a payment, payment with his own life, with his own blood, God accepts us. He accepted it. The wrath has been appeased. He is able to justify us in Christ. Notice that the intentions of God in this text, intentions of Christ are one. You know, if you ever had an impression or you've heard of someone saying, God is this angry God who is just 
waiting to punish you. And Jesus Christ is this loving Son of God, ready to save you and embrace you. It's a wrong impression. God the Father and the Son, with the Holy Spirit, had unanimous, united desire and love for the humans. That's just a little side note for you. Now, once that justification has taken place, the wrath has been appeased, what happens? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. We will not be coming to the great white throne. We will not be coming to the wrath. We are freed from the wrath. This is what the text says. Verse 9, we shall be saved. We in the future will be saved from the wrath of God through him that is to come upon the world that is prepared for the unrighteous. So far, we've looked back at the past events and exult in God's love that has, was revealed to us through the death of Jesus Christ. It resulted payment for our sin. It, exalt, it, it resulted appeasement or propitiation of his wrath. It resulted our justification. It resulted reconciliation. It resulted us to become not enemies, but now friends, now children of God, now part of family, being adopted into his family. What a glorious, glorious truth, brothers and sisters. We then looked at the future and we say absolutely no risk of being under the wrath of God in the future. That is excluded. Read with me verse 10. He says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. What does Paul mean here? What does he mean? I'll read you one author read those, read, uh, wrote this. Paul here Reasons from the greater to the lesser. It is a greater work of God to bring sinners to grace than to bring saints to glory. Because sin is further from grace than grace is from glory. Does that make sense to you? How much more effort did it take to find us while we were enemies and sending his son to die for the enemies? While we had no desire to follow him, we were walking away from him. How much will, how much power it took for him to do that? Was that more power than it would take now? Takes us to point number three. We exalt in God because we're confident in our current state of security. We exalt in God because we're confident in our state of security. The past has been proven. You cannot get better love than this. It's, incom it's incomprehensible. It is incomparable to anything else. The future has been totally guaranteed that we will not be under the wrath. Paul says, how now we will not be saved through Jesus' life now? If God had the power and the will to redeem us in the first place, how much more does he have the power and the will to keep us redeemed? If he, God brought us to himself through the death of his son, while we were enemies, how much more now that we, being reconciled children, 
will be able to be kept by him through the life of his son. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Just think about logic. If he truly gave everything he had, the most precious son, Jesus Christ, for us while we were enemies, would he really not be willing to keep us alive in him while Jesus is alive? That is the argument he makes. If the dying Savior reconciled to God, surely the living Savior can and will keep us reconciled. You see, God not only delivered us from the bondage of sin. He delivered us from uncertainty and doubt about that deliverance. He delivered us from uncertainty and doubt of that deliverance. We can freely state today, those of you who know Jesus Christ, who know God, we can really state right now and think about it, say, I have complete peace with God. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. Not that many people have that. Most of the people in this world cannot say that. I have absolute peace. He has nothing against me because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that glorious? Isn't that the motor for us to exalt in God in this state of reconciliation? Again, look at chapter 5, verse 1. Verse 2, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. We stand in the state of grace. We don't need to have doubts. We don't need to have problems and lack of confidence. We have absolute confidence not in ourselves but in God himself. There is no need to worry. If the past rescue mission and the future avoidance of wrath are both guaranteed, then how can the current security be in question? It cannot. And I hope as we come to the communion table now, I want you to ponder about these truths. Recognize there's nothing, absolutely nothing in you that you can exalt in. There's nothing that you can boast about. But, Exercise your boasting rights and boast about our God. Our Lord is gracious. Our Lord is loving. He has guaranteed our past with his amazing, incomparable love. He has guaranteed the future, saving us from wrath. We stand now in grace where he ready, he's ready to keep us alive and secure in him. We sing the psalm. Or the song, I will glory in my Redeemer, whose priceless blood has ransomed me. Mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails and hung him on the judgment tree. I will glory in my Redeemer, who crushed the power of sin and death. My only Savior, before the Holy Judge, the Lamb who is my righteousness. I will glory in my Redeemer, his faithfulness, my standing place. Though foes are mighty and rush upon me, my feet are firm, held by, my, by his grace. 
I will glory in my Redeemer who carries me on eagle's wings. He crowns my life with loving kindness. His triumph song I'll ever sing. I will glory in my Redeemer who waits for me at gates of gold. And when he calls me, it will be paradise. His face forever to behold. May the Lord be blessed and praised to that.